Today's episode is brought to you by JetTech, an incredible Australian-made company specializing in jet ski accessories. Fish boxes, fish bags, jet ski sleds, jet ski sunglass, goggle hybrids, anything you can think of that you might need for your ski, they've got it. I just got myself a ski primarily for fishing purposes and JetTech absolutely blew my mind with their range of products. They're pretty much essential if you're thinking of ripping in some fish off the back of your ski and they've got you fully covered if you're thinking of using your ski for surfing purposes. Just make sure you do the right thing and don't piss off anyone who's paddling. Ain't That Swell presents... Today we're joined by filmmaker and surfer Matty Hannon, who has just produced one of the great surf travel documentaries of all time, I'm calling. The Road to Patagonia charts his journey from the jungles of the Mentawai Islands to Alaska and all the way down to Patagonia, the latter part of the journey taking place via motorcycle and then horseback as he and his partner Heather make their way down the coast of Chile. This is an amazing film. It draws a through line between indigenous cultures the world over, examining the devastating impacts of colonialism and late-stage capitalism on the environment and those who depend on it for their survival. Surfing is the thread that ties it all together, and Maddie's surfing exploits are as core as it gets. The film hits cinemas on February 14, and I'm expecting it to hit hard. Here's Maddie. Mate, we're on. We're on. Welcome to Ain't That Swell, Matty Hannon. Thanks, Jed. You're a, uh, I don't even know what you are. Who are you? Oh, I don't know. I'm just a fella. Uh, yeah, just just made it up from Bellingen this morning and just happy to be here with you, mate. Yeah. Mate, you're a god amongst men, in my opinion, after uh, watching your film and becoming acquainted with your journey from rural Vic, was it, to begin with? Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of on the outskirts of Melbourne, I suppose, was oh, okay. where I was originally from. Yeah, yep. kind of near the Dandenong Ranges. Yeah, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I know that it's <clears throat> it's pretty far from the coast, but uh, mm. so uh, you grew up there. What did your folks do for a living? Uh, Mum worked in admin, and my old man was a project manager doing various uh, civil engineering sort of things and train stations and yeah that sort of stuff okay and yeah. what brothers and sisters yep got two younger brothers and a younger sister okay mm-hmm. and uh so you're growing up in this kind of regional rural area pretty far from the coast yeah when did the the surf bug kick in um i don't know i guess uh yeah i i kind of came from England originally and then moved over to Oz when I was four and then yeah just living in the bush in in a little spot called Emerald uh for the first part of my time in Australia and yeah fell in love with the bush and and I think it was never that far the coast it was only about an hour or so down to Phillip Island and so each summer we'd go down there and I I guess I just fell in love with it you know just kind of or always felt really drawn to it and uh yeah, yeah, it was just one of those things that just pulled me from the get-go, so, yeah. Man, it's it's one of the really admirable parts of your film, which we're obviously going to get into in, in detail, but, 
mate, for a guy who grew up near the Dandenong Ranges, you've developed an incredible ability to ride the tube. Yeah. Uh, oh, so talk us through earning those stripes. Like it's, it's not every day you see a guy who grew up in the Dandenong Ranges rolling into six to eight foot pits in the Ments and getting blown out of him, like properly spat out, yeah. gusted out. Uh, yeah, how did you how did you you kind of forge a, a passable skill level? As a yeah, yeah, struggled, mate, and still struggling. Like, I mean, in in the film, you take your your best clips or whatever. It's all cleverly engineered and edited, isn't it? But yeah, we, I can manage to sort of poo stance through a couple. So yeah, pretty <laughs> pretty pretty stoked to get the odd good one. Um, but yeah, it kind of started in uh, Indonesia maybe when I was a kid uh, from about the age of 12 to 14. Our whole family moved over there and uh, I remember just kind of uh, getting a bit of a feel for the ocean there and the swell and, you, you know, what Indonesia's like. You can just spend hours and hours in the water and, and I was just on a little boogie board kind of kicking around as grommets do and, yeah, just yeah, just loved it there and then... We moved back to Victoria and landlocked again until I was 18. And as soon as I was 18, I uh, moved down the coast to the end of the Great Ocean Road and, yeah, pretty much set to surfing and learning to surf all day, every day. Yeah. Right. And, and that also coincided with going to university? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of half the reason. I told my mum that I was going to study, you know, and then the reality was that I just wanted to live near the coast. and But then it all melded together beautifully and then studying ecology with the ocean and everything like that fitted in nicely. And yeah, yeah. And so just kept at that. And as soon as I finished the degree, I uh, straight away set off to Sumatra and Mentawe. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I was still in Vico for a sec though. Uh, I mean, talk to us about the kinds of waves you were surfing there. And, and you, you mentioned it, it melded well with ecology. Like how did that, that whole period you know, shape you as a person? Yeah, it opened me up a lot. Where I'd come from, I feel like, yeah, it was a pretty sort of stimmied paradigm. By the time I was 18, Melbourne had exploded and the urban sprawl had just swallowed almost, I mean, looking at it now, it's it's intense. It's almost all the way down to Phillip Island now. And, um, yeah, and it's a kind of a pretty conservative paradigm out there in the suburbs. And so, yeah, I, I suppose when I got down to uni, I was all of a sudden meeting all these people that were, you know, they made it okay to talk about politics or talk about the environment and, and we'd, you know, we'd be sitting around having beers or whatever and having these fun intellectual discussions, which wasn't really passing when I was growing up as a kid. And, uh, yeah, that, that kind of... Yeah, just uh, made me realise that it's just there's so many interesting people and so many interesting things to to chat about and and the ecology. Yeah, it was just all of a sudden I was living at the ocean and I was getting to learn about the seaweed and the sand and the you know starting to learn how to fish and stuff like that as well. So yeah, it was all kind of a, a new thing that was just I was in rapture of. It's a radical apprenticeship that you serve in in terms of becoming a, a waterman so you know you're going from from victoria that surf coast and, and west of there psycho mm. like it gets hammered by swell mm. yeah it's super exciting down there yeah. yeah and then uh from there you kind of go to another extreme in a sense where you, you head up to the tropics in 
Sumatra, the mentalize are uh, where you've got a lot more groomed ocean and uh, a lot warmer water. Mm. You know, what led you, what, what was the, the, the process of, of getting from Vico to, to, to Sumatra? Yeah, what was the decision there? Uh, I ended up getting a position at an NGO. It was called the Sibirut Conservation Project and they were set up as uh, they were doing primate research in the northern end of Mentawe and or Sibirut Island. Uh, basically, the Mentawe Islands are like the Galapagos of Southeast Asia and so that because it's been isolated from Sumatra for so long, they've got all kinds of endemic animals that don't exist on mainland Sumatra. So they've got the Kloss Gibbon or the Bilo as it's uh, called in Mentawe language and, you know, a whole range of um, civet cats and snakes and just stuff that you can't find even in Sumatra. And um, and so this, uh, this organisation asked me to come over and help them set up a uh, ecotourism project, which was hopefully going to draw in enough income for the local communities to um, sort of, you know, provide an alternative income rather than just selling out to the logging companies, which was happening a lot. You'd sort of see, well, when I turned up there, I remember one fellow had just sold his plot of land to the logging companies. They'd come and taken all of his trees and, and he went out and he bought an air conditioner for his little thatched hut, you know, and but didn't actually realise that it wasn't going to work properly in there and, you know, and then he needs a generator and everything else. And it, it's, you know, those kind of companies, they're just preying on the, the ignorance or the innocence and the, uh, of, of these kinds of, yeah, people. And so, yeah, I ended up there in the rainforest for a while until I got really sick um, with some kind of malarial kind of thing and was in Padang for about 10 days in a hospital with a drip in my arm and kind of that was the closest I've come to dying I think was that sickness and um and then after that I was I was like oh I need to get to the ocean you know I'm, <laughs> I need to just cleanse myself and uh and so yeah after that stint in the rainforest I went and worked on a, various charter boats and resorts and stuff like that doing um yeah surf guiding and and yeah I guess that's where I started learning how to pull in a little bit yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. So, the, yeah, it's interesting, man. The Ments, like, you know, surfers go there en masse every year. Mm -hmm. Thousands and thousands and thousands of surfers have been on charter operations out there. But I think so few of us realize what's going on on land. Like, uh, you know, whatever interactions we have with local people, it might be through a, a sanitized kind of surf camp experience. Mm. I don't think many people realize that it's the Galapagos of Southeast Asia. I, I definitely didn't. Um, I, I, I've seen enough footage and photos of the, the native indigenous populations there mm. to know that there is some really intact uh, culture, mm. ancient culture. Uh, what was your dealings with, with those people? Uh, yeah, it was funny because... Uh, I vividly remember on the ferry, my very first ferry trip over on on this rickety old boat called the Berry Logger that used to go from Padang to uh, Moara Sibirut. I um, the very first local Mentawe person I met happened to be a Sekere, a shaman, and he just had a presence about him that was magical. You know, just so classic of the Mentawe people, just so 
smiley and friendly and and yeah just that beautiful beaming innocence of um those happy rainforest people and um and then yeah it was kind of sporadic really over my time I spent about five years living in Mentawe and so um yeah I was I guess since that initial meeting with the fellow on the boat I was really intrigued with what was happening upriver with the traditional communities and uh, I went and visited uh, in my first – well, actually, yeah, when I was in the rainforest, that was that was a pretty eye-opening moment for me coming from, you know, Vico and modern Australia. I was uh, – one night I remember there was, next door to me in the hut there was a lady that was really sick. Uh, the village there had really high rates of cerebral malaria and um, – and yeah, she was kind of at that fever point of do you live, do you die kind of thing. And and the shamans came up, the or the sakere came up the river in their dugout canoes in in the nighttime underneath the full moon and ringing their bells and chanting and doing the mantra and everything like that. And um, and there was about five of them that came up the river and and it was just like one of those really magical moments for me where I was like, whoa, I'm. What, what is this, you know, this isn't, I go to the doctor, you know, and, and basically he sits me down for two minutes, five minutes if I'm lucky and he prescribes me antibiotics most of the time and here's this whole other way of, of healing where you, I, I sort of, obviously I didn't go in and watch them because it was a really personal healing space but I, I heard them come up and, and then start doing the dancing around her and then there's a whole bunch of trance associated with the rituals and so yeah that I started to uh, learn about with my various visits up into the up into the rainforest there so yeah the traditional people it's it's yeah it's a really tricky thing in Mentawe there's not many traditional communities left it's um you know it's been a, a deliberate campaign from Initially from the missionaries, um, German and European missionaries came over and did the same thing that they've done across the world where they've told um, traditional people that they're worshipping the devil and so, you know, you need to change your ways or you're all going to hell and, um, oh, and if you want help for this sickness, we'll give you medicine but you need to convert or do you want some of this tasty food here, just convert or do you want some schooling, you know, and so... Um, pretty brutal tactics from the missionaries and then there was um, a government campaign as well from uh, central Indonesia in Jakarta because of the way that Indonesia is with the archipelago spread out over thousands and thousands of islands um, you know they, they want to be able to have control over all those different island groups but in reality, they're, you know, they're, they're so different from each other, like a Mentawe person to a Javanese person to someone from Irianjaya or um, Papua, you know. it's uh, They're not really the same people. And so for Indonesia to operate as a country as a whole, they had this um, campaign where they would uh, take the slums, um, the the people in Jakarta that were really struggling and living in slums, they would transmigrate them out to these different far outposts like uh, West Papua or Mentawe or, and they'd just literally, they'd bulldoze their little tin shacks in, um, 
in Jakarta down to nothing, down to dust, and sometimes kids would get separated from their parents and they'd just be shuttled onto buses and driven out just like a spider web out to the most far-flung reaches of Indonesia in this effort to kind of javanize um, really remote Indonesia. And, um, and so their idea is that they're trying to get a national identity for Indonesia rather than a million different languages spoken and a million different cultures. And a part of that was also making Mentawe traditional culture illegal, mm. which is exactly the same thing that the colonisers did here in Australia as well with making it illegal to speak language for the Indigimob here. And so, yeah, it's kind of age-old tactics really taken by the colonisers onto these minority groups that are, you know, very often living a much more altruistic uh, life, lifestyle and... Yeah, I don't know. I was on a bit of a rant there. It's great. No, it's just yeah. great history, man. It's so interesting. Was that all during the Sahara era? Yeah, yeah, mainly Sahara. Yeah, yeah. I think they've calmed down on the transmigrasi scheme now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Probably not so much in uh, West Papua, though. They seem to be still Yeah, very heavy over there. Yeah. Stranglehold on that joint. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, a lot of indigenous cultures, uh, as we well know, are painted as uncivilized uh, by this kind of Western capitalist narrative, you know, and that's what Sahado was essentially, wasn't he? He was a CIA mm, puppet, yeah. lackey, like a, you know, he was doing the bidding of foreign multinationals based here in Europe and America. And, um, you know, they, they paint these cultures as uncivilized. Uh, and then they also kind of say, well, you know, if you like your traditional ways so much, then, go back and live like that uh, and, and they often make the argument that like look that you know these people they don't want to go back to living in loincloths and thatched huts they they prefer western conveniences um and a, a lot of these indigenous cultures are just trapped in this in-between place where they're neither traditional nor uh functioning in this kind of capitalist matrix mm. uh, and it, it, it's and it's an awful and, and traumatic grey area, and, and you see it here in Australia. You see it all over the world. It's mm. been dispossessed of their land and their, and their culture, and they're at the very bottom rung of the capitalist class system. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of a, a disaster. But in the Ments, it was interesting um, in your film to see how much they clung to their traditional ways, mm. uh, like the tribe that you're with, anyway. And why did they cling so much to their traditional ways? How did they know that that was the way to live? Because, you know, like you kind of said, there's these illnesses like cerebral malaria. They don't have the the medications to really deal with that. Um, they're missing out on every modern convenience. But at the same time, they're also incredibly... Uh, far more well-off and, and, and rich in ways. Like in what ways were they thriving and, and why did they cling so much to their culture, do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you sort of hit it on the, hit it on the head there just with that last sentence. But, yeah, I, I won't uh, try and speak for them and guess why they have managed to hold off and maintain their traditional lifestyle until this point because yeah it's it was it's been these huge campaigns from religion government and now globalization and just the insidious marketing that we all 
you know, that's why we stare at our phones. We're addicted and, you know, it's so hard to, um, to resist the tantalizing marketing that's put in front of us these days. Um, so I, I get the feeling, this is just my guess, I get the feeling that the reason they were so adamant about keeping traditional culture, Arat Sabalungan is what it's called, um, alive was because they had an awareness as to how lucky they were. Because Indonesia's been colonised by several, um, you know, well, when the Dutch came through anyway, they called the Mentawe Islands the Islands of Fortune because the people there had just abundance of everything, whether it was fruit or game or, you know, materials for building. And so that's why they've developed this incredibly rich um, artistic aesthetic with, you know, how they wear their tattoos or the sharpening of the teeth or the loincloths or the flowers in the hair. And they're very um, artistically inclined. And I think a big part of uh, where that art's come from is that they've had the time to do that. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, when I look at traditional Mentawe culture and it's very distinctly different from the majority of Mentawe villages now that you're discussing where they've converted to capitalism and they're on that bottom rung of capitalism and that means that they're kind of struggling with a lot of the uh, a lot of things in life whether it's putting food on the table or just building a house or whatever because it all costs money whereas in the traditional context they don't really use money they've got everything available to them and so it's it's amazing to see the amount of time that they have yeah like so basically the tra- traditional mentawe people can make all the food that they need for their longhouse community in a in a couple of weeks all the carbohydrate needs for their entire longhouse community so that it'll be an extended family living in a big hut like a longhouse in in two weeks and that'll be enough for a whole year and so they process a big tree and turn it into flour which then becomes a a bread that they eat with every meal and and so that gives them you know there's 52 weeks in a year so that gives them 50 weeks for other pursuits like hunting which you know we're like, oh, I wouldn't want to have to hunt to go and find my food. But then what do you and I do for fun when we're, when we're off work? You know, we go fishing or we go diving and, and hunting isn't, it's not something that's a pain in the ass to do. It's, it's something that's really rewarding and something that makes you feel alive and gives you um, coherence with your the hunting party and your dogs and everything in the rainforest around you. It makes you understand it. And, yeah, I, I suppose... What I saw with traditional Mentawe is that they've realised that they're just so lucky. They've got everything at their fingertips, which gives them all the time in the world to pursue more rewarding things to them. And so they just have incredible family units and relationships between uh, the family. You know, it's, it's very traditional in that sense, like... Uh, anywhere across the globe where it used how it used to be and so 
Yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon to see a father bouncing his kid on his knee for up to six hours a day, you know, like whereas we're so time poor in our culture, you know. Um, I was just telling you before how I haven't really been diving much lately because I've been really busy with my one-year-old and making sure we've got, uh, sorry, two-year-old and making sure we've got food on the table and that doesn't really play into their schedule as much, you know, because they don't have to worry about a mortgage if if they're going to build a house, they'll they'll get the timber from the rainforest and they all know how to build because they've all helped their other people in their community build. And when it comes to building, everybody from their community helps them build. And, and so there's no debt to the bank which makes them available to live their life. And I think when you were sort of saying how we... You know, a lot of Indigenous cultures might feel confused about, uh, you know, whether or not to stay traditional or to to head in this modern direction, which is kind of a funny word to use because modern people, uh, sorry, traditional people are just as modern as what we are. It's just we have this skewed idea of what modernity should look like and what progression is. But, I, you know, we're trapped in a system, aren't we? And it's once capitalism has really kind of got its fingers into the you know the the foundations of your of your society it's pretty hard to hard to say no you're either you either participate or you or you lose it's like us you know if if you don't get a loan from the bank how do you put a roof over your head mm. you buy a block on russell island but uh <laughs> <laughs> true but no that's exactly right mate everything you said there these are the kind of, of, of thoughts and concepts that have been doing loops of my mind since I was probably 18, you know, like I guess uh, growing up in a situation where you're renting with a single mum and you've got no assets, you, you kind of, you're on the bottom rung of capitalism and you're like, wow, this is crazy. I'm born into a situation where uh, I'm looking at a, a life of drudgery on like a rat on a wheel and a lot of my friends are in that situation you know, they got into drug trafficking and, uh, mm. you know, because they realised that, like, the game's stacked against them. It's rigged mm. um, and they've yeah. got no startup capital. So, like, that was a that was a way to kind of even up the ledger, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously not about its risks. But I see the appeal of it at the same time because it is a rigged, completely rigged system. You know, mm. everyone's born into different stages of the race. Uh, and it's pretty hard. like social mobility is is kind of a myth. It's mm. it can be achieved if it can be achieved anywhere. It can be achieved in Australia, but it's still not easy. Like you know, no. you, you're looking at a lifetime of debt, as you as you mentioned, and uh, like that's kind of, kind of like in my opinion, no way to live. You know, you, you, your time is is owned by someone your short time on this planet is is being dictated to by the whims of a financial market that's beholden to petrochemical companies and Mm. and all these actors that don't have our interests at heart that's for sure no not at all yeah and and i think that's exactly it is over in mentawe they're in our eyes it's funny because they're not materialistically poor at all they've They've got a rainforest around them, you know. It's it's an incredibly rich, biodiverse, fecund, beautiful place that, you know, that's what 
we put on an image of a postcard, you know. But in our eyes, they're materialistically poor, but they're time rich, whereas we perceive ourselves to be materialistically rich. But most of us, unless we've somehow managed to leapfrog our way to the higher tiers of yeah, the society, the capitalist kind of system, most of us are pretty time poor, you know, We're, especially if you throw a kid or a mortgage in the mix. It's the, yeah, your time disappears and that's that's a metric that's forgotten about, you know, in this whole world of GDP and, um, you know, what defines success. It's like when you don't have time, how do you carve out the relationships in your life that are actually meaningful? How do you, um, how do you spend enough time in the ocean or, or with your, your, you know, your partner that you love or your son or your, or your brothers and sisters and your friends, you know, that's, that's what really matters at the end of the day, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And time to heal from the stress of this system. Mm. Uh, I mean, so you went from the mens straight back into the absolute guts of the capitalist <laughs> materialist <laughs> matrix. It's an insane transition, man. I, I can't believe the, the journey that you've been through and just how stark the, the contrast between these systems must have seemed to you. you. You would have the clearest perspective on these old indigenous ways versus the modern capitalist reality. So mm. you go from the Mets back to working in a grey office cubicle mm. in the middle of Melbourne. Like mm. what was that transition like and – how did it make you feel? How did you notice that you were kind of starting to feel? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was funny because the whole five years or whatever I was in Mentawe, I'd never worried at all about what was going on back in Australia and I just I thought I'd, you know, I'd discovered my life's purpose, you know, like that was, that was me. I was actually going to move there because I, I felt semi-Indonesian in a way from growing up there as a kid a bit. And, um, but it was when Facebook was invented and I signed up on this thing and I remember seeing pictures of my mates at this amazing party and I got this FOMO that couldn't leave me, you know, and so I'd, I'd gone back to Padang on a visa run or something like that because when I was living in Mentawe, there was absolutely no internet, no phone signal, no electricity, no cars, motorbikes or any of that stuff. It was complete um, isolation. But when you got that, you know, overnight ferry back to Padang, you could get internet at a little cafe. And, um, yeah, and so it was social media that got me and on this facebook series of photos of my good friends back at home having an amazing time i was like oh man i miss them you know i need to go home and um and probably maybe i was you know i was like 26 or something at that point and i was like oh geez i should probably sort my life out and you know get a job and otherwise i'm going to be a failure or something so there was a bit of that um yeah self-doubt creeping in as well as to who i was becoming and um and so yeah i moved straight back to melbourne basically and uh yeah i mean i tinkered around doing some i was teaching initially um i was living down on the surf coast actually before i moved to melbourne i was doing some teaching around geelong and point lonsdale oh, and those nice soft landing yeah, yeah yeah definitely i went to a very quiet with a good mate of mine um james green down in point lonsdale that was um that was pretty epic but even then it, it was hard i remember even just like registering for a 
driver's license and all this sort of thing, all of us, uh, step by step, it just suddenly felt like my freedoms were being <laughs> eaten away at. And, and they are, and that's real. The bureaucracy slowly chips away at, at your time and mm-hmm. your freedom. And yeah, that, that, that's so interesting. Not many people have, have that sensitivity because we've grown up in it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And being away from it for a while definitely highlighted it. And yeah, by the time I realized I didn't want to teach uh, in a secondary school, it was pretty tough. Full respect to teachers out there. It's, it's a really hard job. And so, but I'd also fallen in love with filmmaking over in Mantawe because um, the reason I picked up a video camera in the first place was just to be able to show my friends and family why I disappeared for so long. And um, the only way to do that back in those days, there was no such thing as Instagram or smartphones, they didn't even exist, um, was to record it and then from those tapes I was planning on showing people how magical this place was where I disappeared to. And and so, yeah, because I'd fallen in love with filmmaking, I actually went back to Melbourne and I studied film and um, straight out of that I ended up with a job with a corporate video company in the middle of Melbourne and, yeah, and then that's when... I just realised that I'd taken the the wrong route for me, you know. I mean, I loved Melbourne, don't get me wrong. Had some amazing times and um, so many fond memories of hanging out with friends and and most weekends we would escape down the Great Ocean Road or down to Phillip Island or something like that. Um, But it made me realise that that's the kind of lifestyle that um, I was living. I I wasn't content personally living in the city. It didn't fulfil my desires and I was trying to escape that lifestyle on the weekends and and try and you know find the ocean or um, find some kind of natural space and so yeah I ended up with uh, being really unhappy and uh, being diagnosed with depression and anxiety um, and hit a really hard patch and it took me months and months to get through but uh, after a while after I'd kind of healed myself I realized that the only way I was going to be able to fix myself was to set off again and, and find out who I had been when I'd been living in Mentawe. And, uh, yeah, and, and so that's why I bought that one-way ticket to Alaska. Mm. And so having lived in the Mentawise and then gone back to the, the kind of urban existence, you know, what do you think those trapped in the city life could learn from the Mentawai villages? What is compatible? What could we bring into our own lifestyles that would enable us to you know, skirt anxiety, depression, create some connection, mm. purpose, meaning? Yeah. <clears throat> I think the, 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 the first thing that I saw is, is, is community. I think when you've developed a really strong community network around you, it's harder to fall as hard into those dark places. You've got more people to catch you, you know. Um, and... I think the black and white of it is living in a city like Melbourne, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's one of the best cities in the world and I love it. But it doesn't, even compared to Sydney, it doesn't have that same kind of natural energy to it. It's a very, it's, you know, it's a very flat city with a very kind of, in, not industrial, but it's very built up. It doesn't have the big bay or the mountains behind it. You know, it's kind of the city is the attraction it's not the harbour or the beaches and that sort of thing and so i i found the hardness of the concrete to be really um yeah overwhelming and so yeah i I would imagine that just finding more connection time with with nature is going to be a great great thing for anyone that's feeling similarly 
And, uh, yeah, you can do that in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be through um, what the Mentawe people do. Um, but, yeah, if you, if you watch them, they're, they're fishing, they're canoeing, they're hunting, they're even just their everyday practices are 100% engaged with the environment around them. And, and I feel like maybe that's our isolated experience of the world these days living in cities is that instead of having this tangible relationship with our physical environment around us, we're experiencing it more and more digitally where we're, we're ordering everything in and it doesn't matter where it comes from in the world. We're kind of, you know, when you're living in a city, you can't even go and catch a fish a lot of the time, you know, but you know, everything comes from Amazon from the other side of the world or whatever it How is. How ironic. Mm. It all comes from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's Jeff Bezos's warehouse, yeah. Amazon, not the real McCoy. And, and like in terms of uh, systemic changes, what do you think, you know, workplaces could do or mm. the government could <clears throat> do to, you know, because it's crazy that you, you come from a good family and you had a, a, a good life uh, mm. until you ended up working in Melbourne and even then like you know you're just living the the typical city existence mm. and within a short amount of time you're on the bones of your ass mentally so mm. it, it just goes to show that that system is almost inevitably going to end in bad health outcomes for if not the majority of people a lot of people so that, that just says it's it's not mm. working you know mm. what could we change do you think yeah i mean it's clearly broken there's no way unless we change our trajectory it's it, it, it'll end up in a collapse of our society it's it, by definition unsustainable what we're doing whether it's on our environment as we call it or whether it's on our mental health it you know it, we've had so many societies in the past that have collapsed from similar issues you know whether it's um rapa nui or easter island or you know uh, in the film we dive into a little bit of the uh, mayan history and there's so many examples around the world where societies have lost track and they collapse um because they don't um find that meaningful change that they need to and find the direction so yeah i think it's inevitable we've got kind of two paths ahead of us one of them is change towards a healthier happier um, place for the humanity or there's the inevitable destruction and war and everything that we're going to encounter if we don't sort our shit out um, and I, I don't know I, I look at people you know even around here in the Byron Shire people like Helena Norbeg Hodge who talks a lot about localization I think on a systemic level that that's a really interesting idea of just downscaling these global systems and, and no longer buying all your shit online from Amazon and uh, whatever it is, you know, where you're actually going down to farmer's markets and engaging with the um, people that are growing your food and, and, and that has its own uh, impact on the world where all of a sudden we're, we're nurturing our direct community and, and you're aware of the impacts of your purchases and you're no longer kind of just yeah just like pushing out your rubbish to the 
to the other parts of the world like we do with our recycling in China and all the plastics and all of that sort of thing. Well, they've stopped it now, haven't they? But, you know, it, yeah, I, I think localization is a really great systemic um, path for us. And um, But then probably at the crux of it, I, I think in reality the, the central issue to this whole crisis is probably more of a... Um, a mindset, you know, and it's at, at this point in human history, we kind of look at ourselves in this global modern world that we see online and that <clears throat> the majority of modern Australians adhere to. We see ourselves as separate from nature and, and above nature, where if you were to chat to the Mentawe people or chat to the Indigenous Australian people or anyone around the world from North America to South America or Africa or even to ancient Britain, that was never the case. It was always that we were a part of nature. We were just one strand in a web of life. Whereas right now we've suddenly, we've suddenly taken it upon ourselves to place ourselves at the top of this pyramid with every other species below it and all the trees and, and everything else, we call them resources mm. in, instead of, you know, our community. Whereas um, we don't worry about the relationships that we, we have with our community and whether it's a community of water and rivers and, and trees and, and the birds and the pollinators that keep our food growing. It's um, this idea that we can just do whatever we want because we're at the top of a pyramid just because we've managed to invent a plethora of technology mm. i think that's potentially the biggest thing that we need to shift mm. it's all it's almost as though capitalism it kind of thrives on selling us these extreme sensations um mm. the, the, so much of the stories we we tell ourselves uh, in this capitalist reality is it, it's all about uh kind of feelings and sensations of achievement of success of euphoria of, of uh you know constantly drowning in, in in dopamine and these kind of positive neurochemicals that are given to us too freely and they're mm. overindulged in and then when you go back to those indigenous cultures uh and even you know you can experience this on, on a surf trip uh camping whatever you realize that like as good as it's ever going to get those sensations they're very subtle they're there those frequencies and they can be equally as euphoric but they have to be tuned into and the only way you can tune into them is through stillness and connection with nature and you notice it when you step out of the, the capitalist reality mm. and, and into nature that it takes quite a while to be able to slow down to the point where you can actually connect mm. to what your natural rhythms and needs are mm. um yeah that, that was something i picked up in your film and the way it's shot it's it, it shot so well and, and you frame these indigenous cultures in such a way that um the wisdom of them is undeniable and, and the wisdom of it and the message i got from it is that like the the real things that make us tick as human beings is connection with with each other and with the environment but capitalism disconnects us mm. from those two things 
like specifically it's almost designed to do that it it sets your fellow man up as a competitor Mm. uh it sets nature up as a resource to be plundered and instead the sensations that we crave in this capitalist reality is you know uh yeah dopamine from social media uh you know sugar alcohol Mm. um shiny cars super unattainable attractive women uh, it, and it's, it's all kind of, it's, it's a mirage cause like none of those things bring you any kind of lasting mm. joy or, or contentment. It's those tendrils of marketing, isn't it? Yeah. It's so effective. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to, to resist it, you know, because they've figured it out. It's a bloody, you know, look how much money is in, in that sector, in, in the marketing sector of figuring out what makes our primal instincts just go, Oh, I want that. You know, it's because we are primal beings and that's where I kind of hold a bit of faith in us as humans is that we haven't really changed that much over the last couple of hundred thousand years or whatever it is. We're still the same beings. We're just having a different experience of the world right now. Um, what what was your question? Sorry. It wasn't a real question. <laughs> I had something to say there, but anyway. Oh, yeah. man, it was just some rant. But, mate, uh, so interesting to – you go from anxious and depressed – and by the way, how deep did it go? Like how 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 bad did it get? Um, mm. If you don't mind me asking, you can you know, avoid that question. You don't have to go too deep on it. But, uh, you know, what was that road to happiness mm. back like, like on the way back? Um, yeah, I mean, I think people have gone through a hell of a lot worse than what I went through. So I won't try and ham it up too much but yeah for whatever reason it it hit me pretty hard I suppose I was also going through a breakup at the same time with um my ex that I'd been living over there with that didn't help the situation um but yeah it it was it was just an experiential collapse for me where I remember there was a few days there where I was just like yeah I mean struggling to get out of bed there were suicidal thoughts things like that like yeah I think pretty legitimate depression Mm. at that point, no real self-worth. Yeah, I just kind of lost all the things. By moving to Melbourne, I'd lost all the things that I really found uh, valuable in my life and that was diving in the ocean every day to catch my food and and all the rest of it. I'd felt so disconnected from from nature and, yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah. But going back to what you were talking about earlier about um, how it sets us up against each other, I think that's that's a pretty core principle of of the capitalist mentality, isn't it? It's that individualism mm. that it really tries to create within each other, and and this whole idea that if you can just satisfy your own individual needs and and you know aim for for happiness, or or even on the wellness front, just continually looking within, you know, as the solutions can be found within, whereas. I feel like there's a big difference between uh, what I experienced over in Mentawe was it wasn't so much about, you know, what an individual can transform or transcend towards. It's about um, nurturing the relationships between each other, between uh, everybody in your longhouse or everybody in your community or, like I said earlier, with the with the trees and the rivers and the animals around you it was it's instead of it being about yourself and an individualistic perspective it's about 
community and relationships. And I, I think I think that's a really core um, pillar of of what we're getting wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the. The thesis in the book Lost Connection. Have you read that by no. Johan Hari? Amazing book, man. That yeah. guy's a, a modern prophet. But yeah, right. So, in terms of uh, getting your life back on track, basically what that entails uh, is the subject of your film Road to Patagonia, which is mm. a, a trip from Alaska to Patagonia. It's tip to tip of the American continent. It's it's a journey that I didn't even consider possible. I didn't even didn't even enter the the realm of possibilities for me but you did it and i watched it and it's <laughs> fucking insane it's a masterpiece mate i i gotta say like i thought i'd seen it all or i thought i'd, I'd kind of reached the the height of uh positive emotion watching torrin martin's film clipped i don't know if you watched that but i have yeah it's yeah e- it's epic it's yeah. epic yeah uh and then this just raised the bar again um and so you know kudos to you because it, it's done in such a uh diy bones your ass fashion but the production values of it are fucking high end the way it's shot man the colors and there's this kind of i don't know how you manage to pull it off but there's this cosmic layer to it all that you manage to encapsulate without even saying in so many words the the wisdom of these indigenous cultures i found that overwhelming watching that and, and a lot of sh- a lot of documentaries attempt to do this they attempt to kind of um show how either abused indigenous cultures are getting or um how they should be more respected but this was, had a more a more subtle and thus like poignant way of of getting it across um so full credit to you man but the journey it, it begins in Alaska and right off the bat I'm like fuck this cunt's gonna die <laughs> like, he's not gonna live some fucking bogan from Victoria like yeah. out there battling bears and wolves and shit mm. uh, how many times did you think you were gonna die during that that first little leg yeah um thanks for the kind words about the film mate yeah it means a lot um I don't know about the comparison with Calypti and that because those guys are they're, they're, I just love what they do um, yeah, we shouldn't be comparing them. They're, they're, they're both epic in different ways. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, both they're very like, different films. They're different films. Yeah. What they have in common is that they're um, DIY spec, you know, people yeah. striking out and risking it for the biscuit in a massive way. And that is just always such a compelling narrative. Like mm. you, you, as the viewer, you don't know what's going to happen because – you don't know what's going to happen as the filmmaker. Like it's an unfolding yeah. dynamic experience. Yeah, I think that's probably my favourite documentaries to watch is the ones where there's been no pre-production or little pre-production done, you know, the where there's this verite nature to it where, yeah, the story kind of unfolds and presents itself rather than being scripted in beforehand. Um, yeah, but as far as getting over to, uh, yeah, Alaska, that, that was – you know, I bought this one-way ticket thinking that I'd get to Alaska, nature would be everywhere, I'd just be in my element and I'd feel way better straight away. But the reality was that I uh, picked up my motorbike and landed in this tiny, tiny little um, village 
and the beach where you actually go surfing is probably about 10 miles away or 20k or something like that from the village itself and so you're actually completely alone on this um on this part of Alaska where you can't drive into it's it's so remote it's hard to explain how remote this place feels like Mentawe feels remote but this place is just a whole nother level in my um experience and um, yeah, and there were times where I thought I wasn't going to make it through the night because of the bears. This one particular place, Yakutat is what it's called. Um, it, it's got the densest brown bear population in the world and the bears are only second largest to the bears on Kodiak Island. So they're just everywhere, the brown bears or the grizzly bears, and they're super fat, which is a good thing because the salmon runs. It stops them from raiding and eating humans when they're camping in the tent in the woods. But it doesn't stop your mind racing when you're completely alone out there and, um, you know, you're 20Ks away from a village of like 700 people or whatever it is and there's like one or two little shops that you kind of just feel like you're out there by yourself. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there was... It's funny though because I think that so much of it was just fear too. Mm. So much of it... I probably wouldn't go and do that again um, cause I don't think I'd be any less scared going and doing it now, but so much of it is built into our culture of fear, the bears, fear, the wolves, all that sort of thing. And maybe if you were just better attuned into it all, it wouldn't have been the same experience that it was for me, but as an Aussie going over there and, you know, there's wolves and cougars and bears and, um, you know, that's just the beginning of it. So yeah, yeah, it was pretty scary. It's the nature of adventure, isn't it, that you can't help but be naive to it because True. it wouldn't be an adventure otherwise. You'd know what you were up for. So uh, that's what makes it so courageous and it's what makes it so compelling to watch as well. Yeah, thanks, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you work your way down the coast. Uh, we were just talking before about some of the waves and, and surf cultures you encountered. Um, I guess it's... Canada there where you, mm. you, you meet Heather. Yeah, 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 that was epic, yeah. That yeah. looked epic. So she, where was she, Vancouver Island? Is that is that Tofino? Where... Yeah, yeah, that's where we met actually in Euclulet or between Euclulet and Tofino, yeah, right. which is Vancouver Island, yeah. It, it's it's pretty remote out there as I yeah. understand it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely not at all compared to where I was in Alaska. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely... It's a well-trodden path out to Tofino, you know, mm. but it's, I wouldn't say wilderness around you. There's a lot of logging and a lot of uh, that sort of stuff going on on the island. But I don't know, there's something about the American landscape compared to Australia where our, you know, our mountains in a way look friendly in comparison, you know, and maybe it's also we don't have those extremes of cold and snow, but over there there's glaciers and the mountains they look like they could kill you, just, just the mountains, you know, and the, I don't know, I, uh, I find the, the landscape over there just so much more dramatic and, yeah, kind of, um, yeah, maybe that's what you were alluding to. But, yeah, that, that was beautiful, arriving into BC after being in Alaska for a couple of months because I'd essentially been by myself, you know, 95% of the time while I was in Alaska and so when I came down to BC and then I sort of fell into this little surf community in um, Tofino and Euclulet and then met Heather, all of a sudden I was around like these beautiful people who were, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was just a, 
just a really beautiful milestone of the trip and because things are so expensive over in Alaska food-wise because they import everything because they, um, you know, apart from fish and some various um, bits and pieces, but I was surviving on peanut butter sandwiches because getting fresh fruit and vegetables was out of my budget, you know, because cause I was doing all of this with no backing. I'd literally just save money in Melbourne and it wasn't even really enough to buy a house, but I took that little bit of savings that I had, bought a motorbike and then figured I've got to be on this particular budget in order to make it down to Patagonia. And and so, yeah, <clears throat> a lot of fresh, good, healthy food was out of my budget. And so that was one of the key things I remember when I met with Heather and she owned this little organic veggie farm down in Vancouver and um, all of a sudden, uh, yeah, there was just like a a myriad of my senses being lit up yeah wow it's so crazy she's got the pump and permaculture farm and they're surfing and, and growing food it's the way you'd like to live really isn't it like uh, yeah it feels good yeah i mean in a way i guess it is reminiscent of what the mentawe people do you know with their own version of they don't call it permaculture they just they just call it their garden and their garden is their rainforest and I think permaculture maybe does a, a yeah, uh, tries to mimic that a mm. little bit, yeah. And, and also, you connecting with indigenous cultures in America along the way too. You know, what were some of the through lines you, you saw developing between, say, the Ments, um, maybe our own indigenous cultures here in Australia and in America? Was there uh, themes that were, were were running throughout all of them? Yeah, so when we were on the trip and doing the filming, it wasn't that I set out to interview Indigenous people by any means. And and even in the end film, it's not like everybody's Indigenous there that we interviewed. But um, I, I, was, I was just, I think I interviewed about 50 people in the end um, and probably only 10% or maybe a bit more than that made it into the final film. Um, and so it was more in the edit that I really kind of had this epiphany moment where I realised that this is what the film is about. Um, but, yeah, as far as actually meeting people on the road, I, I was just really intrigued to, to try and... I remember setting off, I was like, OK, well, if I'm going to, you know, film a little bit of this, what I'd love to do is document what's still really beautiful in the world and try and share something positive. And, yeah, that was kind of my compass through it. So I was interviewing anyone from surfers to you know motorcyclists whatever just yeah but but always drawn to interesting conversations mm. kind of how you and I are sitting here right now mm. and then moving down the coast you uh you end up in Oregon mate tell us about uh, your experiences there it's a it's a really interesting part of the world obviously Jerry Lopez uh famously lives there and mm. he lives there for good reason there's obviously world class waves around there and some really good snow as well but uh yeah it's kind of got a, a virulent strain of localism that you experienced yeah 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 i mean i don't want to make that my uh oregon <laughs> oregon experience or like I, I don't know i found oregon just to be overwhelming and beautiful and um similar to bc in some regards but yeah what you're talking about that we kind of touched on briefly before the podcast was um this one town called seaside up in the northern kind of corner there of oregon has an incredible wave 
and probably shouldn't talk about it but at the same time maybe I wouldn't if if the experience had been a little different and it was a bit more of a respectful kind of experience but yeah it was um I, I remember kind of turning up to uh the point there for a swell um and turning up alone on my motorbike I was pretty low-key I didn't and I'd sort of met people in town, maybe it was the day before or something, that sort of said, oh, you can't park in, in their car park. You've got to sort of park down the beach and I, I really wouldn't go and surf there. You know, it's it's not a good idea. And, um, you know, a bunch of fellows have done time for the localism and all that sort of thing. Wow. That's, <clears throat> that, that's some serious conviction, um, so to speak. But, yeah, to be willing to go away to prison. Yeah, to I mean, I, is I don't wild. know how much of it is myth and um, how much of it is reality, but it, there was a lot of stories, more than anything I've ever heard. And, and so, yeah, anyway, to cut a long story short, I remember walking out there one day um, and sitting there and it was, it was kind of like four to six foot, just sort of, yeah, really nice actually, really, really beautiful. And, and it's always a- the way, the funnest waves in the world are the most localised. Yeah. It's never, they're like psycho slabs. Yeah. It's like always the, the four to six foot groomed point break that seems to bring out the worst in humans. Yeah, well, this one's pretty legit with the, its nice tube and everything on it. And But um, yeah, there was a crowd of about maybe 15 or even 20 or something like that. So I actually just sat it out and I just... Um, watched on the cobblestones and just figured that I'd, I'd wait, you know, and maybe find a little window when there wasn't as many people out. And, and so I just sat there watching and, um, and then the wind started coming up and, and it got a little ruffled and I suppose most people, had, it was whatever the, you know, change of shift and, and so a lot of crews started heading in and I think there was only one guy left out <clears throat> and I figured, I figured that I may as well paddle out and have a have a little surf regardless but as I was paddling out all of a sudden the wind switched and the tide had basically dropped out and then the swell started pulsing as well and so there was just this kind of magical switch that that had happened and as I was paddling out all of a sudden it was six foot six foot plus um and these dredging tubes just you know just firing down the point wow. and, and just me and this fella out and and I, I was just you know under my breath trying to keep keep it cool but also like it's it's as almost as good as waves get you know is what it felt like to me and paddling out there and um and uh I think the fella must have got caught, caught one in and then I paddled to the takeoff zone there's no one there you know and so I caught a wave and then we were kind of on a different um schedule you know we were missing each other in the lineup initially um until at one point he saw me catch another one and then he kind of stopped and and then he's like you know blown up at me and <clears throat> yelled at me and told me to piss off or whatever and and I was like yeah okay mate I'm, j- I'm just here by myself and oh no that's what he said he's like hey man Kelly called they want you back is in California oh. I was like oh yeah I'm actually not from California mate and he's like uh what mate and, and he hated it even more that I was from Australia. And, uh, and so anyway, I, I kind of stuck it out. And, um, but it, it was just really weird. I've never really seen a lineup really kind of just reduced to a sad state of affairs where he kind of 
stopped surfing, even though the waves were absolutely all time, like incredible, just beautiful waves just going unridden. There was too many for us to ride, you know. Even with the two of us, there was way too many waves coming through for us to ride. Oh, what an idiot. And, um, yeah, initially he came and sat behind me and then he started like making out. He was spitting on the back of me and this sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, and I can't really remember too much else out of the exchanges except it just ended up in such a, you know, there was no violence beyond the kind of intimidation factor. And I, I kind of kept surfing just to make a point that I wasn't going to get sent in by him. But at the same time, yeah, it's it's rough. I remember I, I paddled out the next day as well and it was just the same again. And it's, uh, yeah, real heavy localism for sure. Fuck, mate. It's so ironic because that guy... He's ruining his own central nervous system mm. over and over again mm. by doing that. Like he's just flooding himself with cortisol. You know, he will spend the next few days in a funk of anxiety, stress and depression that would make him unbearable to be around for his mm. wife and children if he has them, which is probably unlikely. But uh, Yeah, definitely not healthy, that's for sure. I mean, he didn't, he didn't seem like the healthiest, healthiest of fellas either, you know. Like I feel like there's potentially some mental health issues going on around in that particular surf community. But I mean, I don't, I also don't want to write everyone off, you know, mm. there's, um, there's, there's great, I've met some epic people in Oregon. It's such a beautiful place, but yeah, as far as a one story of yeah, terrible localism, that that's it. Mm. And, you know, from there, like your trip starts to take on the shape of, you know, it kind of reminded me of the, the, the journey that Shay Guevara goes on. Uh, before he gets radicalised and becomes this kind of socialist militant. But the reason he became radicalised was because he underwent a, a number of similar experiences to your own, which is you know travelling through Central and South America and meeting various Indigenous people, various victims of coups uh, that were backed by America, uh, who, you know, people who were tortured... Um, uh, people have been dispossessed of their land, have had their rights taken away from them. Uh, and one of those groups, the Zapatistas, they're, they're actually, I mean, depends who you listen to, but they're, they're often considered like terrorists, aren't they, uh, mm. in, in certain sections of the press. And uh, mm. Do they still control parts of Mexico? What's the story of the Zap- Zapatistas? Uh, I'm not fully aware of where the movement is these days it's um i think it's quietened down a little bit into a bit more of a philosophy rather than a militant movement Mm. i think the uh, the movement itself or or maybe it's um you know maybe it's sort of becoming itself in its own slow way it's a beautiful province down there in southern mexico with the farming and it's um and that's very much the spirit of uh the zapatista philosophy there um yeah i mean there's yeah there's people all over the americas that have had those experiences and i think yeah we we did have those same experiences with um people that have been tortured and labeled as terrorists just because they present different ideas and the dominant ideology and and the government that happens to be in charge at the time and um and yeah, it was it was definitely eye-opening. And sometimes I couldn't even understand everything that was being said because some of it's a bit more high level than my dirtbag Spanish that I learnt. I, I think I could count to like 
eight or something like that when I crossed into Mexico. I couldn't speak really a word of Spanish. And so learning it on the fly and trying to interview people in, in Spanish was always tricky. And um, But, yeah, coming back and uh, seeing this kind of thread of a, a story through all the different interviewees afterwards made it pretty clear that there's just... Uh, yeah, same as what I experienced in in Mentawe and listened to their stories. There was this this same colonialism mm. happening across the world. Yeah, and it still exists. Uh, it, it still has its tangles in the media because this whole narrative is completely untold. Right, that's the the crazy thing. Like unless you're watching John Pilger documentaries, rest in peace. Like you're not going to come across the stories of these people framed in in any uh, reasonable light you know they're painted as terrorists they're, they're mm. painted as savages are uncivilized but you know say the zapatistas like what what was their philosophy what were you know were they terrorists what was their their way of life how did you how did you find them yeah so my understanding is that they wanted to create an autonomous state that was community oriented and uh, deeply connected to the land and farming and uh, a descaling of the kind of global overarching Mexican uh, government. And, um, yeah, yeah, more of that sort of Indigenous-style philosophy. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I guess at some point they were forced to take up arms for the right to live like this, which seems... Uh, it seems like a, a reasonable request to, to live like that, but mm. in the eyes of capitalism and, and, and globalisation, it's it's deemed illegal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Mexico, as we know, is kind of it's a it's a it's a dangerous place, you know. And I mean, the Mexican people are as beautiful as anywhere in the world, but yeah, they've got they've got issues there, and so guns are brought out probably even quicker than what they might be in other places. I think. Mm-hmm. And you continue heading down the coast uh, in Chile. You, you come across similar stories. I mean, the the story of the the coup that ousted Salvador Allende uh, and brought in Augustin Pinochet. It, it's it, it's one of the, the the most awful stories that you'll you'll ever hear. But it's a story that's never heard. But you heard it straight from the horse's mouth. You, you came across some people, an individual who was tortured. Uh, I mean, like, what did you learn about... What was the experience like as an Australian? We're pretty naive. We can be Mm. down here, you know. We're not exposed to this level of foreign interference. Uh, What was it like for you to be sitting opposite a man who's experienced torture, like, uh, at the hands of essentially, like, our friends in the world, Americans. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's really sad, isn't it? And um, I mean, for for us at that particular interview that you're talking about, it was, yeah, sitting there and listening to him and giving him his space to talk and share his story and console him um, in our own tiny little way that we, we could. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely an affirmation in my mind of um, the same story that had just kept occurring the whole way down and that mm. sad story of... And, and just coming from Australia and, you know, I've, I've had similar uh, interviews with 
uh, in Digimob here in Australia mm. and it's just that we happen to be the, the perpetrators of colonialism as um, European settlers arriving here, even if we don't agree with it, um, we're, we're embedded in a system. And so, yeah, uh, obviously over there with Pinochet, it was a little more recent and I don't know if it was more brutal, maybe, or maybe just a bit more obvious or something like, like that, whereas the English tried to cover it up when we were in uh, when, when sort of invading Australia and saying it was terra nullis and all the rest of it. Um, but, yeah, it, it was uh, – it's a big a big topic right now in Chile and, and I'm a little bit off um, – finger off the pulse as far as, like, you know, current affairs in Chile right now. But I know that the Mapuche people uh, are still fighting super hard – for autonomy and the ability to manage the land themselves and they're the only people that hadn't been conquered by the Spanish um, when the whole colonisation occurred was the, the Mapuche people down there and so they're a really strong uh, and spiritual people that have been persecuted for that because they didn't just bend down and, and adhere to, to their colonisers. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it's really sad stuff, but it's also, it's like not long ago, Chile's president had a referendum to try and totally change their constitution where it would have been one of the most progressive constitutions in the world um, where they were looking to enshrine the rights of nature and enshrine indigenous people into autonomy and having, um, yeah, just an incredible kind of, overhaul of their constitution but unfortunately it was voted down and nobody knows how much corruption was involved in all of that but it would have really changed the um, trajectory of the Mapuche people down that way um, so yeah unfortunately their fight still continues and it's connected in the same way that you know the Aboriginal Australian people are when fighting for country here or the Mentawe people who are trying to fight off the uh, palm oil plantations over in Australia, uh, sorry, Mentawe, it's, yeah, it's the same fight, isn't it? And for some reason, the Indigenous people are very often aligned with um, with that nature preservation kind of, yeah, that, that story. Yeah, because they seem happier. It brings them so much happiness and they rightfully point out the the shortcomings in the material capitalist reality when it comes to satiating the soul mm. yeah 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 there's not satiating too much soul going on in capitalism is there no it doesn't seem like it uh and you know hearing these stories over and over again like did you undergo a similar transformation as Che Guevara you know you're gonna don a beret and pick up nah. a grenade launcher and start <laughs> slaying Uncle Tom's yeah nah not quite mate nah not tough enough for the likes of that and I don't know, I've got a little son now, so um, militancy is not really super high on my uh, agenda. But, um, yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's been a slow, slow journey of realising what I want for my life um, and now it's a, it's a mutual journey with my 
partner Heather and and our son, and we've actually got uh, one more kid on the way. Wow! Congratulations, mate. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. So, but I mean, there are definitive things that we learned from the trip, and and one of those was um, that I don't belong in a city. I I need to feel connected to the land and um, live in close proximity to um, you know rich nature is what brings me happiness and how I want to raise my, my son. And, um, and Heather, yeah, she's really uh, just super connected to the earth, growing all sorts of food and keeping our family healthy and fermenting everything and whatever. You know, it's, she's, a, she's just like a, a homesteading kind of guru. And yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, so many lessons to have learned for sure. Mm. Well, that militancy did go somewhere then because it's interesting like you can't not be moved when you sit in the company of people who've been so abused by a system that you know we're kind of at the top end of i guess Mm. uh and you can't help but want to reject it and want to help those people it's the the right and just thing to do and what do you think are the, the the practical ways in which you know obviously taking up arms or, or becoming a, a radical militant's pretty out of the question and pretty far gone um what are you know what are the the manifestations of those same emotions though for you mm. i mean you kind of mentioned it growing your own food mm. um in terms of engaging with these these groups that are being abused around the world in australia um do you have any kind of practical ways because i imagine people are going to watch this film and like myself, it's energizing mm. in that you want to participate in the change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a spectrum. I think we've all got a different thing we can offer. We've all got so many different skills. Some people are amazing at growing food. And, um, and then I, what I've tried to do since coming back from that trip is really focus on um, my work in the, in the film world in documentary filmmaking to kind of contribute to that same conversation and so yeah I've been working a lot with uh, the Surfrider Foundation we just made a film about the seismic testing down in the Southern Ocean and um, yeah I'm involving uh, the uh, the mob from down in Tasmania as well in Lutruida and that's an incredible film I only just tweaked that you made that uh, I watched that film and me and Dave Rastovich actually were we're doing a podcast series called System Failure and we did an episode on the seismic blasting, uh, which is, yeah, it's beyond rattling. And in fact, I actually just had uh, on the podcast, it hasn't gone to air yet, Ricky Basnett, a South African pro surfer who um, found out that they were going to be doing seismic testing in the mm. trans sky down there. Yeah, sure I've was. heard about that. Yeah, yeah and uh, he was a, a totally apolitical surf punk slash uh, you know, ex-alcoholic and, and just a, a, a battler who never thought he'd ever really engage in mm. politics until that happened. Yeah, and he had a major crack, and they ended up getting the getting the seismic testing banned and, and, wow. and getting shell banned from the trans guy. So it goes to show, you know, like anyone can get involved in this stuff, and anyone mm-hmm. can ever have an impact. But yeah. yeah, that is a crazy issue, man. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. I think that's. Yeah, yeah, and just looking at community around you is another project that I've been working on with some good friends of mine, Dan Ross and Hayley Talbot. Um, we made a film about uh, going down the river and, and all the 
uh, mining that's happening upriver or proposed to happen anyway. They're pitching for uh, basically rare mineral uh, and copper mines to sort of kick off in the headwaters of the Clarence Valley. Mm. And it's, it's amazing to see the, the inertia of how many people support this kind of pro or pro-life is not the right word, but, you know, like an eco-centric kind of mentality, the, the amount of people that turned up um, to, to see that film at Yamba two weeks ago and how, how many conversations that have come out of it about trying to stop these huge developments of chopping off the top of a mountainside and potentially poisoning the Clarence River. And, like, most of us want the same thing we want clean water we don't want to assault the the whales with you know nuclear weapon style sounds we none of us want that but because we're in this global system that we, you know we don't really know where our where our impact lies you know we're so detached from it someone comes and takes our rubbish each week and it just goes away or we buy something on the internet and it just comes in and that's where i think that localization system is a is a fantastic model to be able to really measure and understand how you fit into the ecology of a landscape and yeah and as far as what people could do i i think you know there's there's so many things as far as um you know connecting with nature i think that's a that's one of the biggest things i think if we can somehow it's so hard like i i I run a little business and so i have to have a phone and then i have these or i tell myself i have to have these social media accounts otherwise i won't get enough business to keep a family fed and so and then all of a sudden you end up addicted and and so it's, it's really hard but if you can steal away from that and and go and sit you know, whether it's under a tree or on a mountain or, you know, just somewhere where you've got a nice warm breeze running over your your naked torso, you know, and and just like maybe it doesn't even have to be meditation, but just, just sit and listen, you know. Just give yourself a little bit of time away from the madness of, oh, I don't know, competition and, and everything that we're kind of stuck in. That That's a big thing, just sitting and then... I think another thing like what you're doing here, Jed, you know, growing your own food is amazing. It's, it's, it's such a rewarding and, and one of the most measurable uh, impact reducing things that you can do. And then, I don't know, there's just like even just living the life that we love of, of going surfing and going hiking and climbing mountains and whatever. Next weekend, I'm going to shoot some rivers with a friends down in Bellingen and and I feel like that stuff's just as important, you know, like getting out there and it doesn't all have to be meaningful activism, but mm. just embedding yourself in the stuff that feels real and pure to you. I, yeah, that that's huge. Mm. And I guess one aspect that's, that's missing from our current way of doing things, I mean, because one barrier for doing all these things is not having the time, as we mentioned. Mm. So being able to collectivize and pull uh, talent or, or skills, I should say, uh, whether it be building homes, growing food, mm. catching food, you know, these kind of cooperative style things, that seems to be a way to skirt the, the financial system, which puts such a heavy price on a lot of these fundamental needs mm. that we have. Uh, yeah, that, that kind of... That, yeah. Oh, that was the only reason. We, we ended up with a, a little uh, plot of land down in Bellingen, you know, it was... 
um, living in community. And uh, I went in with my brother and my sister and, and it's become it's become affordable to us to actually own a piece of land that way. But it's not just a method of sidestepping a high um, house price. It's, it's all these beautiful things of watching my son wander off each morning down to my sister's place and hang out with them for an hour before he goes off to Uncle Jace's place and he's like pushing him around on the bike and yeah, that, that's, that's way better. Like I wouldn't ever want to own our land by it just in a nuclear family. It, not only would the amount of work that's involved be overwhelming, um, like just over the weekend, yeah, Saturday and Sunday was spent digging a septic trench and then moving two 30,000-litre water tanks into place. Like, A, you just can't do them without community around you. Like, there's no way we could have moved those gigantic water tanks if my brother and my sister and their partners weren't there to help with the ropes, um, which, again, means you have to, like... Everything's commodified. If you're not in community, it means you have to pay someone from the outside to come in. And then when everything's commodified around you, it means that you just have to work to earn more money and then money becomes your driving force in order to live instead of having, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think you get what I'm saying. Oh, exactly, mate. I'm so glad you shared that. That's, that's exactly right. You, you put it so succinctly. And, mate, I, I don't want to go too deep in the film to spoil anything but i don't think it's any secret that part of the journey is done on horseback mm. uh and at which point heather who's you know now the mother of your child uh mm. joins you and it's it's well this is where calipton road to patagonia enter similar terrain where you know you guys are striking out as a couple and it just puts mm. so much pressure on a relationship mm. traveling uh, in itself is pressure on a relationship. You're, you're just glued to the hip for so much, but then you're, you guys are trying to wrangle uh, somewhat wild animals yeah. uh, with very little experience. Like, yeah, talk us through that leg of the journey and how challenging it was for for you guys both personally and as a couple. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, my favourite part of the journey by far, definitely. It was the hardest part, but that's the funny thing, isn't it? It's sort of like raising a kid. It's it's the hardest thing you've ever done, but it's the most rewarding. And um, Yeah, we, we knew nothing about the horses before we sold our motorbikes. And then luckily the fellas that we sold our motorbikes to happened to be two Australian ringers that wanted to from the outback, you know, they were literally, it was just the most coincidental thing. I could not believe this in the film. There's a couple of fucking jackaroos from West Queensland or some yeah. shit kicking around yeah. uh, in South America looking for someone to teach them how to surf. And, yes. Uh, yeah. They, in exchange, yeah, uh, so we showed you guys <laughs> ride horses. Yeah, we traded, we literally traded time where we're like, all right, well, let's do a few days of teaching you guys how to, you know, read the ocean a little bit and, and um, learn to stand up on a surfboard. And they, they helped us buy uh, these four beautiful horses. Um, we got skunked. Well, not skunked on one. He was uh, much older, um, but we got, we got kind of hoodwinked on, on one. He was a beautiful horse and, and I'm glad we, we had him. But uh, he was like 35 or something <laughs> like that. But they told us he was like 10. And Heather and I, who knew nothing about horses were were easy, easy targets you know for a bit of gringoism 
Um, but anyway, yeah, our, our Aussie mates that we sold the motorbikes to, they, they were amazing help. They showed us how to put a saddle on, showed us how to put a bridle on, but they only really showed us once. And I figured that that would be enough to remember. And I remember, yeah, we would for days afterwards still trying to figure out how to put bridles on and all the rest of it. So it was a huge learning curve and, um, yeah, like a real romantic idea for the both of us when we uh, first thought of the idea of uh, of going off on, on horseback. But by the time the reality kicked in of actually caring for these huge four equine beasts, you know, they're, they're huge and uh, they, they got real needs in the world. They need food, they need shelter, they need... Um, they need looking after to make sure the day that after we got them, they ran away 10 kilometres and we had to... Luckily, the Aussie guys were with us and they, they, they literally tracked them, their footprints in the dirt until we found them 10 kilometres away over a river. We had to... Yeah, it was a full adventure, wow. just that one. So There's so much cosmic synchronicity in this film that kind of... Yeah, it suggests to me that there are, if not greater forces at play there's some frequency you tap into when you strike out with good intention and put your nose to the grindstone. It's like the universe kind of helps you. It, 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 it points you in the same direction while constantly throwing curveballs at you. Mm. Like that's, there's no doubt about that, but just the, the, the way that, you know, you guys are on horseback, uh, you know, just that you could have lost them straight off the bat if those guys mm. weren't with you and just been, Totally. totally marooned mm-hmm. uh, but then as well like you go on this the, these hard ancient routes through um coastal regions like pretty cliffy escarpments and uh treacherous terrain and and, and that then brings you into you know pumping waves with no one around it's an unbelievably cosmic journey <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it felt that way sometimes it's uh yeah being on the horses was that that was the emotion that we wanted to be able to try and share with the world when we'd finished the journey and we had a whole bunch of footage at the end of it because there's something completely different of being with and riding on top of a living, breathing, heart-beating animal compared to a machine, a, a motorbike that, you know, you just park it out in the rain and turn the key on, turn the key off and whatever. It just, it runs, it it doesn't run and it, it doesn't really have a life force, you know, whereas, yeah, being on the horses and even though it was so much harder to, to learn how to look after them and, and, you know, just everything from getting kicked sometimes to, to just running out of water or trying to find enough food, that, it, it just, all those difficulties made it all the more rewarding because, yeah, I think they then began to really... I don't know if I would say they loved us, but they, they respected us, the horses, and they, they knew that we were there to care for them and, and, and help them as much as they would help us by carrying, by carrying us. And, and so, yeah, we developed this really reciprocal relationship that <clears throat> created a feeling over those six months on the horses where it, it just it felt like we'd taken it back to the roots, you know, and we'd managed to find some, some kind of modality of travel that just fitted within our dream and yeah it's uh 
yeah, it's it's hard to put it into words. It's it's it was even harder to put it into a digital format to turn it into a film because how do you how do you create or how do you take an emotion of just you know slowly plodding along on a beach with your four horses and a surfboard on the back and and just that you know that feeling of isolation and camaraderie with your your partner and and then you know whatever it might be even just seeing a wave breaking off in the distance and that just lights your soul up like how do you take all those emotions and and put that in a digital format and turn it into a film that was definitely the the hardest piece of the puzzle to crack and but you did it mate because the connection between you guys and the horses was so emotional for me as a viewer you know i was choking back tears at times hmm. uh, it, yeah there's just something about it you know the, the 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 labor the 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 gifts that these creatures give to you is mm. immeasurable and it's life preserving and sustaining and in, in exchange you preserve and sustain their life it's a, a perfectly symbiotic relationship but it, it comes with it brings with it an immense connection and Man, that was fucking powerful. <laughs> oh, it was, yeah. Man, it, 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 it's one of the many, it's what makes, there's just so many points in this film that it's so uh, emotionally supercharged, mm-hmm. uh, but not in a, it's not in a corny, overdone way. It, it comes across, you know, you're worried about how to transmit those emotions through the film and you, it, it, obviously it was a major challenge, but you succeeded in Mm. doing that mate Ramon Navarro you got to spend time with one of the all-time greats dude yeah. are you serious yeah 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 tell yeah. me about it yeah well it was just by chance really that he um so the day after our horses ran away basically I think the reason they ran away was this is how underprepared we were we bought the four horses but didn't really have anywhere to put them and then a new friend of ours in Chile um, offered for us to put them in her very small backyard and that night the horses ate every, well ideally she had really long grass she wanted it grass eaten down but they ate all the grass and ate all their veggie garden Fuck. and then ran away and um and then one of our or someone who turned into a good friend Andrea she heard of this story of our horses running away because they probably got bored of whatever they had to eat there and she offered up her place that she was uh, building like a little community thing um, right there next to Punta de Lobos. And, um, yeah, it just so happened to be next door to Ramon Navarro's place. Um, Cosmic, so, yeah, probably, yeah. yeah, well, definitely the, the greatest Chilean surfer of all time and one of the all-time greats uh, and such a, an earthy, yeah, just a, a core dude, you know. The, what is he, mm. like the son of a fisherman? He's from such humble beginnings, lives a humble life. He's very much uh, living in a similar vein to the Mapuche. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Mapuche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah. That, that very earthly, cosmic kind of existence. Yeah, yeah. But then fucking skates his half pipe in the, or his quarter <laughs> pipe in, in his uh, house like a madman. As do you, Matty. You rip on that on the skater. Ah, uh, yeah. Got, got a couple of 15-year-old tricks <laughs> up the sleeve, yeah. Um, yeah, but meeting meeting Ramon and his family, Paloma and, and his son, Inti, was was a real highlight of the community of Pichilemu for sure. They're, um, yeah, definitely doing amazing things around the community and uh, he, he managed to protect Punta de Lobos from... It was a club med or some shit they wanted to build on the point there? Or? Oh, I think there's been all manner of 
um, development proposals. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so he's he's always, you know, I, I don't I don't know Ramon that well, you know, but um, from the time that, well, I think we went fishing with him a couple of times, and um, yeah, did did an interview at his place, and yeah, it just seems like a man a man of his word, and he's living living how he kind of spruks, and he's. You know, Paloma's veggie garden out the back is just popping off, and they've yeah, he's catching huge sea bass on his um, on his sup. You know, he pulls a he's got a hand line that he pulls a big lure and goes offshore on a big kind of twelve foot sup, and then drags in. That was how we um, first actually met him. Him and his cousin pulled in this sea bass. That I don't know how many kilograms this thing was. It was about four or five foot long. And, uh, yeah, just off the back of a sup. And so, yeah, he's quite an enigma around town and um, <laughs> just someone, oh, unbelievable. Uh, yeah, that I was uh, grateful to spend a bit of time with and learn a little bit from. Magic, mate. And I can't let you go as well. Uh, you, you fucking centred it, Mavs. <laughs> unbelievable, dude. I, I can't believe that a guy who started surfing at 18 not only managed to surf that joint, but get waves out there, dude. Yeah, it took me, I remember it took, uh, it took, because when we paddled out, there was only like one or two people out and <clears throat> I'd, I'd sort of been advised by crew in the car park to sit wide and just watch it for a bit, which I figured was pretty good advice. So yeah, I watched it for a good hour and a half <clears throat> before getting out, but ended up getting a couple, which yeah, yeah, that, that was a huge highlight for me, you know, as, as yeah, an average surfer that... <laughs> It didn't grow up near the beach to be able to drop into a couple of them. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, gigantic mavericks, but it, it, it was breaking properly. So Fuck, it was proper. It was yeah. bowled out, cupped out. And not only are you surfing it, you've driven down there on a motorbike and camped on the beach. Yeah. Fucking so cool, dude. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, oh. Yeah, it's good, good times. Probably a bit more uh, gung-ho than what I am these days. Uh, magic mate well road to patagonia it's a masterpiece five gold cone pieces and uh you all gotta get out and see it thanks so much for your time on your jed thanks man